Here's a really special deal on a great product from our friends over at Fresh Pressed Olive Oil Club. You can now receive a $39 bottle of artisanal fresh pressed oil free if you just pay $1 to help cover shipping. And there's nothing else you must buy now or ever. It's a wonderful opportunity because with olive oil, my number one rule is the fresher, the better. That's because the olive is a fruit and olive oil is actually a fruit juice. Like any other fruit juice, extra virgin olive oil is at its glorious peak of freshness, flavor, and nutritional potency when fresh squeezed. And that's what's missing with so many supermarket olive oils. After sitting on the shelf for months or even years, they've lost their freshness and can't compare with just pressed Evu shipped direct from the new harvest. Here at Milk Street, we really like these oils' vibrant, grassy flavors, as well as the intoxicating aroma, just like a garden in a bottle. Prove it yourself with no obligation to buy anything ever. For your free $39 bottle direct from an award-winning artisanal farm, go to getfresh177.com. That's getfresh177.com. One last time, getfresh177.com. Buying furniture is not easy. You want well-designed pieces that fit into a modern lifestyle, yet the look should be timeless. And you want a custom experience creating furniture designed specifically for your space. My suggestion is that you check out Cozy, a North American company that thoughtfully designs furniture for modern living. Their high-quality products are delivered quickly and are easy to assemble. Cozy also offers a great range of coffee tables, washable rugs, wall shelving, and credenzas. Their outdoor collection features high-quality modular sofas and sectionals made for outdoor living. You can visit their store in Toronto. Cozy now has expanded from an online market to their first in-person space, or go directly to their website at Cozy.com. That's C-O-Z-E-Y.com. Transform your living space today with Cozy. Visit Cozy.com to start customizing your furniture today. You know, I grew up with Vermont farmers who made do with tools they had on hand. A hammer, pliers, uh, and baling twine, of course, for most jobs. When I became a cook, however, I found that having just the right knife or maybe the perfect carbon steel skillet made all the difference. And the right tool also added pleasure to my cooking. I truly enjoyed my time prepping as well as cooking food. And that also goes for a car. The all-new Lexus GX has an exceptional capability that will have you seeing possibilities you never knew existed. Its advanced technology and luxurious interior mean that wherever you go, you'll never go without. And that includes available dynamic sky panorama glass roof, available front row massaging seats, available 33-inch all-terrain tires, and available multi-terrain select. Live up to the all-new Lexus GX, luxury beyond limits. Experience amazing at your Lexus dealer. You know, I like classic clothing that never goes out of style, and that's why I suggest you check out Quince, an online clothing store that focuses on timeless essentials at great prices. I recently bought a Mongolian cashmere sweater for under $100. It's a great sweater and a great deal. Now that warm weather is upon us, Quince has all the seasonal must-haves, like 100% European linen shirts from 30 bucks, performance polos, and versatile flow-knit activewear. The best part, all Quince items are priced 50 to 80% less than similar brands by partnering directly with top factories. And Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing practices, along with premium fabrics and finishes. Upgrade your wardrobe. Go to Quince.com slash MilkStreet for free shipping on your order and 365-day returns. That's Q-U-I-N-C-E dot com slash MilkStreet to get free shipping and 365-day returns. Quince.com slash MilkStreet. Hi, this is Christopher Kimball. Thanks for downloading this week's podcast. You can go to our website, 177milkstreet.com, for our recipes, culinary ideas from around the world, or our latest cookbooks. Now, here's this week's show. This is Milk Street Radio from PRX. I'm your host, Christopher Kimball. Today, writer Sam Ashworth takes us inside the most high-stress kitchen in the world. That's the French kitchen. We'll hear about his experience apprenticing for a Michelin star restaurant, where his ego and spirit were broken. But he did learn to love cleaning squid. 
Oh, yeah, I think if I need to go to a zen place ever again, I might buy a hundred squid and just clean them all out. Also coming up, J.M. Hirsch goes to Mumbai to discover real butter chicken. And later, Dr. Aaron Carroll asks, can meat substitutes really help slow down climate change? But first, it's my interview with Lauren Shockey. Her new book is Hangover Helper, Delicious Cures from Around the World. Lauren, welcome to Milk Street. Thanks so much for having me. So what is a hangover physiologically? In other words, you drink too much alcohol and what goes on in your body? Sure. So what's interesting about a hangover is it's not just a single thing. It's almost like this constellation of different symptoms affecting your body at the same time. So alcohol causes gastritis, which is an inflammation of the stomach lining. So that's the reason you feel those stomach achy feeling, just like nausea. Um, Dehydration is also a big part of what a hangover is. But that achy, tired feeling, that actually comes from not sleeping well. You tend to have really poor sleep when you're hungover. And because you haven't had that sort of restful period, that's part of the reason that you wake up just kind of feeling like crap. Before we get to the hangover cures, you know, the day after, is there anything people can do on the night of other than drinking more water? Actually, if you sleep in complete and total darkness, like, you know, blackout shades, eye mask, that's proved to lessen your hangover's recovery time. One thing that I found really interesting in my research is that if you have a happy, optimistic attitude while you're drinking, that's actually shown to have less severe hangovers. Hmm. Whereas if you have a negative outlook or maybe a lot of anxiety in your life, your hangover has actually scientifically been proven to be a little bit worse. All other things in this study remain the same, the amount of alcohol, the type of alcohol. It was just your mental state of mind affects the severity of the hangover? That that was an academic study that was published. Really? Mm-hmm. Um, although the type of drink that you choose does actually have some effect on what kind of hangover you have. Darker drinks, so something like a bourbon, a brandy, a red wine, those actually have higher levels of congeners, which contribute to sort of a more severe hangover. So, okay, so your book is about cures. So let's go down through the list. Pickled foods show up a lot Mm -hmm. in your list. Uh, Pickled foods are a good thing? I think so. Um, So pickled foods obviously are high in salts, which can help replenish electrolytes and get some of those depleted salts back in your body. Pickle brine is a popular cure in Eastern Europe, um, in Poland and Russia in particular. In the book, I have a pickle brine Bloody Mary, which is just sort of a fun twist on your classic hair of the dog cocktail. But you'll also see there's some Eastern European soups that have pickled brine in it. Uh, And the raw egg, which shows up in lots of uh, cures. Yes. So the classic is the raw egg. You put a little bit of Tabasco in, you put a little bit of vinegar, and you take it in one shot. That's kind of a quintessential old-time hangover cure. And eggs actually are a great hangover food. They're full of amino acids. They're full of protein. So I would definitely say that one probably is one that I would recommend for sure. Other cures are jump in some very cold ice water, like the polar bear swim. Yes. <laughs> I, I would think that actually, of all the cures, I think mm-hmm. that one would, would shock you right out of a hangover, right? I would think so. I have never done a polar bear swim, so I'm a little bit too much of a wimp to try it. Um, But I think that one would actually be quite beneficial. And if nothing else, you're probably so cold that you're thinking of other things that are feeling not so great at that moment. It's like hitting your hand with a hammer. You're not going to worry about the hangover. Um, So let's go around the world and talk about recipes. Uh, New Zealand, they have their mince and cheese pies, right? Yep. So mince and cheese pie. So that's essentially a ground beef pie with cheddar cheese in it. You can find them all over. You know, you can get them at a gas station. You can get them at the local cafe. Usually they're portable. The one I did in the book's a little bit larger, so you can actually make that for maybe dinner. And South Korea has a particularly uh, consistent hangover soup. It's fairly strong, right, that, that soup? Yes. South Korea is actually one of the main sources of inspiration for this book. I had been reading an article about South Korean drinking culture because in South Korea, you tend to go out with your office mates, you drink sort of all night long, and in the morning you eat heijangguk, which essentially translates to hangover soup. And there's not just one hangover soup, there's an entire sort of category of hangover Mm -hmm. soups. So the one in the book is from Jeonju. It's got bean sprouts, it's got rice, and it's in sort of a traditional Korean anchovy-based broth. But it's much lighter than 
maybe a heijanguk that you would get in Seoul, which might be made with more like coagulated beef uh, blood. It might have sort of beef that's been simmered for hours um, along with maybe like a richer soybean broth. Um, but I just found it so fascinating that there were so many different kinds of dishes that you were specifically would eat when you're hungover and you'd go to the hangover soup restaurant to, to enjoy them. You say you end up with hangovers uh, occasionally. Uh, do you personally have a favorite cure? I have a couple favorites. If maybe it's like a really bad hangover and I just need something super plain, I like a good kanji, the Chinese rice porridge. Usually I'll put some ginger, which is usually good for helping nausea and settling the stomach, and I'll put a little uh, scallion in there as well. So that's sort of a nice, just simple, I can't really face food at that moment, hangover cure. And then one of my other hangover cures that I really love is just a breakfast sandwich that I created one day when I was hungover. It's fried eggs, peppered bacon, cilantro, sweet Thai chili sauce, and sautéed shrimp. And it was one of those dishes that I just was cobbling together something in my hungover state. And I think that's sort of an interesting thing about hangover foods. You know, we do have these foods that fall within the canon of, you know, traditional hangover foods. But so much of what we eat when we're hungover is that personal moment in the kitchen when we're alone. We don't want anyone to see us. So I made that sandwich and it was really delicious. Lauren, thank you very much. It's been a great pleasure having you on Milk Street. Thank you so much for having me. That was Lauren Shockey, author of Hangover Helper, Delicious Cures from Around the World. Right now, Sarah Malt and I will be answering a few of your cooking questions. Sarah is, of course, the star of Sarah's Weeknight Meals on Public Television, also the author of Home Cooking 101. Hi, Sarah. Hello, Chris. Before we open up the phone lines, I have a question. Do you ever eat fast food? And if you do, what do you eat? I really don't. But if I were going to, which might mean that maybe perhaps I have. <laughs> nice try. Uh, some fried chicken. Like any fried chicken place? or In um, Charleston, I had Mama Lou's fried chicken. And I, I hate to tell you what their secret ingredient is, what they brine it in overnight. Coca-Cola. Lowry seasoning salt. Mm. It's fantastic. I grew up on it. Best fried chicken I ever had. Mama Lou's fried chicken. Thank yeah. you, Sarah. Yeah. Let's open up the Check phone lines. Check it out. Welcome to Milk Street. Who's calling? Hi, this is Chris calling from Calgary, Canada. How are you? Hey, good. How are you guys? Pretty good. How can we help you? I have a friend that uh, moved to Calgary here from New Zealand about five years ago, uh-huh. and we got to visit him in New Zealand, and one of the things that he made sure we ate was uh, New Zealand meat pies, and they're uh-huh. just a thing that everybody loves. So now that he's in Calgary, it's one of the things that he just really misses. And I was like, oh, man, I'm going to make you a, a really good meat pie. Most of the recipes I see have puff pastry. And mm-hmm. I had only worked with uh, frozen store-bought puff pastry before. And I'm finding that that is going to be the trickiest thing to make the actual meat pie. He's had some in Calgary and said that they taste very sweet and almost dessert-like. And that's kind of the main thing. So I've never worked with puff pastry. I'm just wondering how I would attack this project. I've made puff pastry the food processor way and then the authentic way. And I'm glad to say it's in my distant past and I never have to do it again (laughs) because it's really hard. Um, I would definitely go buy, you know, the best commercial version of puff pastry you can. I would definitely not make it. Like with certain dishes, it's all about the puff pastry. This is about Mm -hmm. the filling. Okay. I guess the question is in the filling, are the ones in Australia or New Zealand, are you dealing with meat fillings that don't have potato with them and the ones in Canada do? Is that one of the things they were talking about? What? How is the filling different? He said it wasn't so much the filling as much as the pastry. Oh. So I was just wondering if there's any certain, like if there's different types of puff pastry or what I should be looking for. Yeah, I mean, uh, I would have a fairly sturdy, low-fat crust. I would think that it's more of a container here. So I'm surprised they use puff pastry, but I would just make it a typical short crust, which means the fat's fully cut into the flour. As far as the meat goes, I would stick with the meat, use some spices, nothing sweet, leave out potatoes probably to get a nice thick meat filling. When you were there, is that what you had? Could you describe it to us? Yeah, it was uh, like a mincemeat, and yeah. cheese was kind of the one right. thing we were going for. And I don't remember potato being 
any part of it there. Okay. So. Yeah. When we say sweet, are there like cinnamon, ginger, or any of that kind of spices in a Canadian meat pie? I'm not certain. He was pretty convinced it was the pastry. I think it's just that he's not in New Zealand. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Can I make a suggestion? Yeah. What you want to do is make a really terrible meat pie to show the yeah. New Zealand meat pies are superior, which will confirm his opinion about New Zealand versus Canada. I think he wants to go back to New Zealand going, we make the best meat pies, right? Yeah. yeah. I think it's the nostalgia of it that yes. will always be the missing piece. Exactly. I think you're in a no-win situation yeah. here. Christopher, uh, best of luck. Yeah. Um, yeah, we're rooting right. for you. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Take Thanks so much. Okay. okay. Take care. All right. Bye. Welcome to Milk Street. Who's calling? This is Madeline. How are you? Where are you calling from? I'm doing well. I'm calling from Somerville. How can we help you? So I was wondering if you knew anything about the flavor compounds in maple syrup and maple sugar being affected by high heat during baking. Which are you talking about, maple syrup or maple sugar or both? I was assuming there might be something common to both because I have made two different kinds of cookies and once used all maple syrup as the sweetener and then once used all maple sugar. And while baking, I could smell maple and like the raw batter sort of tasted like maple, but the final product didn't have any sort of maple flavor. You know, if you use maple syrup in a pie, for example, we just did a brown butter maple pie with a baker from Portland, Maine, and it was phenomenal and had a tremendous amount of maple flavor. I wonder whether when you smell chocolate, you're cooking a chocolate cake, for example, baking a cake. When you start to smell chocolate in your kitchen, it is true you're losing the volatiles from the cake, and the cake's going to have less chocolate flavor. So it may be that in a dry application like a cookie, the maple does essentially, the volatiles burn off, and you don't have much flavor residually. With eggs and other things, maybe that actually bakes up differently. Because I know in a pie, for example, maple syrup will be very strongly flavored. What kind of maple syrup did you use? It was maybe A, which I think... Yeah, it doesn't have a ton of maple. The trouble is, in the old days, they had A, B, and they even had C. And A was at the beginning of the mapling season, and it's the lightest of the maple syrups. These days, they have four levels of A, the one that you might want to look to cook with. And I still don't know if it would dissipate in a dry application. It should look black. (laughs) Yeah, it should be really dark and really strong. It's dark amber is the darkest one. It's the darkest and the uh, maple syrup that's harvested at the very end of the season. It's not necessarily in the season, although what happens is there's more bacteria in the lines. The trees are coming back to life. And that's that bacteria, that's the other stuff in the sap Mm -hmm. is what's actually making the syrup darker, at least one of the reasons. But I I think there's another thing going on here, which is if you smelled maple in your kitchen during baking, there obviously was maple flavor there. So I think there's something about dry baking versus pie where you retain the flavor better and you get less burn off of the volatiles. But Sarah's absolutely right. Buy the darkest colored syrup you possibly can for the most flavor. We need to test this. I think in cookies, you're just not going to get much maple flavor because it's going to burn off. I think also the um, the maple sugar ones really didn't have anything. And the ones no. with syrup, which is a little more moisture, did have some amount of flavor. Yeah. Well, so- maple sugar probably has less maple, maple in flavor it. than in maple it. syrup yeah. per tablespoon is yeah. my guess too. It's more concentrated in the syrup. I was thinking in a pie, the internal temperature might not get as high. Well, that's true. The pie would be about 155 degrees internal by the time you're done, and baking's going to get much hotter than that. That's an, would you excellent. like a job at Milk Street? Yeah, really. That was excellent. Madeline, you go. Man. Woo-woo. We should call her next time we have a I know, really. But no, meanwhile, good. we'll get back to you with an answer. Great call. Thank you, Madeline. Yes, thank you, Madeline. Okay, I th- I, thank I, you so much. I think you hit on the answer. Thanks. Okay. This is Milk Street Radio. Sarah and I are here to investigate your culinary mysteries. Please call us, 855-426-9843. That's 855-426-9843. Or email us at questions at MilkStreetRadio.com. Welcome to Milk Street. Who's calling? Hi, this is Lisa. How are you guys doing today? Great. Where are you calling from? I'm calling from Galveston, Texas. So how can we help you? I am not a cook. That is my first standard. You know, McDonald's is my favorite place to eat. But I get very confused when I do try to use a recipe, so I tend to kind of just go by the seat of my pants. And I'm really wondering, is there a liquid measurement that goes between a glug and a splash? (laughs) That's a great question. Where does it go between a pinch and a dash? 
Years ago, back in the early 70s, I was taking some French cooking lessons, and I asked exactly this question. I said, what is a pinch of salt? What's a dash of salt? And I almost got thrown out of the class because I, I, it, was, it was something that I guess no one wanted to answer. But I think it's a good question. Sarah, you can answer it. Oh, why, thank you. I'm passing it along to you. Okay. Um, a pinch is literally, you know, you put your two fingers in and pick up whatever you can and put it in. And a dash to me is more a larger amount. So yeah, I would agree. But where do you see those terms? I mean, mostly things are in teaspoons and tablespoons, no? It, they usually are, but then I get all confused. Is it a level tablespoon? Is it a heating tablespoon? Where's the difference between those? They will tell I'm you. They'll tell you. <laughs> you know, here's the thing. Not every recipe is written beautifully, but um, places like Milk Street really take this very seriously, so they will lead you. If it's a heaping tablespoon, they'll say so. Other than that, it's level. Um, if something okay. is chopped before you measure it, it will say, you know, a half a cup chopped onion or they might say, you know, one medium onion, comma, chopped, which means that it doesn't matter how much onion it is. But it wasn't until the early 20th century, 1900s, where they actually, factories would turn out standardized, or late 19th century, turn out standardized measuring grids. So that's only been about 100 years. Before that, it was really the Wild Wild West, because you never really knew what was going on, no. right? Well, it's like Italian right. grandmothers, you know, right. you can never get them to really yeah. tell you what they're doing. Yeah, that's where I got the glug and the splash. Oh, you just had a glug of this. You had a splash of that. Look, a glug and a splash is not going to be for making sponge cake. It's going to be for no, making a no. soup or a stew or, or something where, you know, it probably does not matter if your definition Actually, of glug and splash, yeah, right? It's different. Uh, it's different. Yeah. yeah cornbread. Oh. What's the glug in cornbread? It was two glugs of buttermilk. Yeah. And then a splash of something else. Oh, uh, no, that's no, that's a problem. You need better <laughs> recipes. I like that, though. Two glugs. That's going to be my next cookbook. <laughs> a glug and a splash. <laughs> and then everybody will be lost. It would be interesting to find out what a glug is. Does it mean something? Is it a half a cup? Is it a quarter cup? I think that's kind of interesting. I'm going to go look this up. I bet if you did a quick search, you would find this easily. Okay. It's good. Trust the recipes from a good source. They will tell you. They will hold your hand. Okay. I promise you. I actually, I have all of my parents' recipe books, so I have somewhere around 150 to 200 Okay, uh, well, that's the, the issue is you have these older books which have indistinct amounts. Yes. At Mill Street, we're going to now start calling for a glug. <laughs> Just, Somehow I think that involves <laughs> alcohol, but I don't think that's a good thing. I think thing. that's great. Yeah. Lisa, great call. And uh, actually, I, I want to look into this. I think it's interesting. Lisa, you got his attention. You got my attention. Yeah. <laughs> okay. Have a good one. Thank you for that. Thanks right. for calling. Okay. Right. Bye-bye. Thank you very much. Yep. All right. Bye-bye. You're listening to Milk Street Radio. Up next, we're chatting with writer Sam Ashworth about what it's really like to train in a French Michelin-starred kitchen. That and more after the break. I'm Christopher Kimball, and now here's a word from our friends at Allagash Brewing Company, who love food as much as we do here at Milk Street. Hi, this is Jason Perkins. I'm the brewmaster at Allagash, and I've been making Allagash White in Portland, Maine since 1999. So a white beer is a very old style of beer. Traditionally, it was brewed with spices of some type, typically coriander and orange peel. And I think one of the things that makes Allagash White distinctive and different is the rare combination of complexity and drinkability. And it's sometimes remarkable to stop and realize that I never get tired of it. You know, I'll open a can or I'll pour a glass and the first sip and I'm like, man, this beer is good. <laughs> There are a lot of different ways that folks can enjoy an Allagash White, and here are some of the examples of what folks here at the brewery like to do. My favorite thing to pair with an Allagash White is simple, beautiful seared scallops over a bed of fresh greens with blood orange and shaved fennel. My favorite would probably have to be like an Italian or a hoagie, capicola, pickled vegetables, Crusty bread, it's got that nice lemony, zesty character that just gets you ready for the next bite. The ultimate pairing for me is this dish called bosom, which is this like big pork shoulder with like salt and brown sugar. We also call it candy pork in my house. 
and a little like scallion ginger sauce. It's like lettuce, rice, pork, sip of white, lettuce, rice, pork, sip of white, and it's just perfection. My other top choice was like a hot dog. Like just have a hot dog and have an allagash white. You don't need to dress it up. There's something about mussels with beer, especially the white, that is just so good. I feel like it goes really well with different soft cheeses that aren't too dominant, but then also with like spicy Indian food. So I think it's just really versatile. I could imagine like something like um, like lemon meringue pie. That would be really nice. Pairing Allagash White with carrot cake is a thing of beauty. This maybe it sounds really boring, but pepperoni pizza. <laughs> I feel like after a long week, having like a nice warm pepperoni pizza and a cold Allagash White is just <sighs> like you made it. Like you did your week. You deserve this pizza. You deserve this beer. It's perfect in summer. It's perfect in winter. I haven't really found a flavor that I don't think works really well with Allagash White. <laughs> yeah, so not only do I drink it while I cook, I often cook with it. So if I'm creating some kind of stew, I'll add a little bit of Allagash White to it. A lot of people use Allagash White in like a fried fish batter. Anywhere where you can add like a spritz of lemon or a spritz of lime, that could be the beer. We are very food-minded here at Allagash, obviously. <laughs> and I think because of that, Allagash White is kind of subtle in a way that not all beers are, and I think that makes it very food-friendly. I think it tends to unlock qualities in the food that you otherwise wouldn't necessarily notice. Like it's not too hoppy or it's not too sweet, so it sits right in the middle and sort of brings the flavors of the dish to life. If you ask anyone here at Allagash, we're pretty much all stands for this beer. We love it so much because every time you have it, you pick up something new. Every time you come back to it, you're reminded like, oh wow, yeah, that's really good. This is Jason Perkins again. Just wanted to say thanks to everyone at Allagash for sharing. You can try Allagash White at home, too. Head to Allagash.com slash locator to find Allagash White near you. For 21 plus only, please drink responsibly. Allagash Brewing Company, Portland, Maine. This is Most It Radio. I'm your host, Christopher Kimball. Working in any professional kitchen is, of course, physically and mentally demanding, but the intensity of a classic French kitchen is on a whole different level. Right now, it's my conversation with Sam Ashworth, who trained in a French restaurant as research for his forthcoming novel. Ashworth recounts that experience in an article for Eater called Super Sad True Chef Story. Sam, welcome to Milk Street. Thank you. It's great to be here. Uh, I loved your piece in Eater about uh, staging in a classic French restaurant. Um, you basically said that French cooking in restaurants was to a large extent successful because of the training program, how they train people to become chefs. Could you just talk about how that works? Sure. The argument that I make in the article is that the reason that French food succeeded and sort of spread its wings over the the Western fine dining world wasn't so much to do with its inherent quality as by the rigid standardization of its processes, like the quasi-militaristic approach that has dominated French food for the last 100 plus years, that what it meant was it resembled the assembly line. So in the same way that fast food dominated the American highway because you always knew what you were getting, with French food, the system was such that Wherever you washed up in whatever grand hotel, whether it was in Cape Town or Lebanon, you were going to get proper French food cooked properly. You knew what it would look like. It's interesting. I mean, you know, as you know, Jacques Pepin, when he came to the States, ended up at Howard Johnson's. Uh, (laughs) Although I've asked him about that. He, He still defends that as a brilliant career move. In any case, Howard Johnson's then in French cooking have a lot in common. They're both systematic. Yes. The French have a, and I'm generalizing wildly here, but it is true, the the French have a preoccupation with correctness or perfection. And you hear this a lot uh, when French people will describe a great uh, great meal or a thing done well. They'll say it was very correct. 
Right. Which is not, I think, a, a thing that Americans tend to think of, but for French people, correctness, the correct and virtuous expression of a classic is inherently virtuous and pleasurable. You worked for a while for a uh, Michelin-starred chef who I think had a temper. Uh, Could you tell us a little bit about that? Uh, Sure. I would not describe her temper as anything particularly out of the ordinary for anyone who's worked in a restaurant for a long time. She was a remarkable woman. Uh, She did not go to culinary school. She really built this this place, and it is a beautiful place, really with her own hands. What, what, what's um, the name of it, and where is it? It was. It's called Auberge La Fenière. It's in the town of Lourmarin in Provence. And so, what was it like working for? It, <laughs> she was grandmotherly with a bite. She was, on the whole, pleasant, but when things were wrong. The switch was instantaneous because the message, I think to her, the message needed to be conveyed loudly and clearly. So uh, I love the bit about cleaning squid. Oh. So so first of all, I have two questions. How do you clean squid? And two, <laughs> why did they put you in a position? No one trained you. They just said, here, clean the squid. Basically, yeah. Well, I would say that they, I, it's, it, it's very hard to do this over the radio because it involves a lot of hand gestures. What you do is the squid has two parts. There's the tail and then there's the head and intestinal tract, and you separate them from one another. You have to invert the tail to clean it all out. You can't just run water into it. You have to get everything out. There's a little spine-like bone inside that tail that keeps it rigid, and it took me about 15 minutes to figure out that I had to work that thing out with a fingernail, and then it became easier. Well, you, you said your first squid took five minutes and 158 oh squid later, you finally got to under 30 seconds. So you did have a learning curve. Oh, yeah. And I, God, it, it, it became athletic. It was this all-consuming physical experience because you can't, looking at them doesn't help. Your eyes are stupid and distract you. So you have to work with your fingers only. All your, all your intelligence funnels into your fingertips. And that level of, I guess, self-obliteration, that was pleasurable in the end. It was exhausting and my hands ache, but that was, it was great. I think if I need to go to a Zen place ever again, I might buy 100 squid and just clean them all out. <laughs> um, so you also write, you say, the whole point of the French training system, to deaden the parts of yourself that need a deadening to prepare you for the lifelong grind of moving up the ranks. In other words, to be successful, you had to put aside part of your personality, lock it away, to just focus on the job at hand, right? Yeah. Uh, it, it reminded me, I used to study martial arts here and there, and I took a kung fu class once, and for 10 or so minutes, you would just bash your forearms into one another's. Just bash, 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 bash. S- not too hard, but repetitively and rhythmically. And the point was so that when you got hit there, it did not hurt. And that was what I kept thinking of when I, when I was there. And I'm, I wasn't great at going numb. You are just on your feet for a long time. You're doing very repetitive work for a long time. You're in a very hot room for a long time. And you have to love it. And I think that that's, in one way, what makes the system work when it does. Is that the people who do come out of it are the people who love it. Is there one moment when uh, all of this work, the stage in, in these restaurants, just kind of broke you? Cilantro. <laughs> it was cilantro. It was, it, honestly, it was the cilantro. So plucking parsley is essential. And parsley leaves are, they're firm, they're easy to get off the stem, they're clear. Cilantro, though, first of all, those stems have perfectly good flavor, but also they're wetter and they cling. Right. And getting them off is just finger-numbingly tedious. And it was the second week when I realized that I was just going to be groundhog daying and I was going to be repeating the same <laughs> tasks that I'd done over and over and over. That was a one-word answer. Yeah, yeah but cilantro is, well, as, as you just said, the, the cilantro stems have a lot of flavor, so. Yeah, they do. But if you've got to make a beautiful fan of cilantro leaves on top of your salad, right. then you have to have this, the leaves only. 
I, I do have a question. I mean, I did a piece on our show about the new Paris. There's a lot of uh, American chefs there, English chefs, mm-hmm. Japanese chefs. French cooking was sort of at a standstill 10 years ago. It's really been reinvigorated. So isn't the old world order of French cooking being pretty much overturned to a large extent? I think it has. And I think what's changed, I think one of the things that we we think about when we talk about how French food has evolved is we really focus on the food and not the system of getting it to you. That is the restaurant experience itself. What shocked me most when I was in France wasn't actually how kitchens were changing. It was how the dining experience was changing. When I went to starred French restaurants for dinner or lunch, I found them to be oppressive, <laughs> almost humiliating. Uh, I went I went to, when I was in Lyon, I went to La Mer Brasier. And when I went, it was one of the most sophisticated, finest meals of my life. And no meal has ever made me feel so small. <laughs> it was the perfect expression of French service. Monsieur was never permitted to refill his own water glass. When I sat down, they cleared the tablecloth so it did not brush my knees. The food felt a lot like I needed an Ikea instruction pamphlet to assemble it. (laughs) But more than anything else, I had this whole pageantry of service whirling around me. And I felt so superfluous to the experience. I, okay, we'll, we'll have an argument now. Uh, <laughs> I, I, I wouldn't characterize French service quite that way. I was at a well-known French restaurant in Paris years ago, and there was a older woman, obviously widowed, by herself having lunch. And uh, different way people would stop by and talk to her for a few minutes, then leave. And they, they had carefully orchestrated a way of entertaining her without annoying her. Mm. Uh, mm. And that level of sophistication in serving the client to make her comfortable and at home without being obsequious and overbearing, you'll never see in an American restaurant, I don't think. And so there are, are things about French service which are just unbelievably uh, brilliant. I, th- I agree with that. And I'll, I'll, like, I, that reminds me of the, maybe the most breathtaking moment I've had in a restaurant. I was in a place in Paris uh, a couple years ago, and the server, as she was removing something, a little dollop of sauce dripped, I think, onto another plate, onto the table. Just a, a small dollop. And the waiter behind her, who was not a back waiter, who was completely at a different table, as he was passing, without even looking at us, just took out a cloth, swiped it as he went, and kept <laughs> going. It was almost as if it was hardwired into his limbic system. It was, it, and it just took my breath away. The attention to detail was exquisite. Any words for people who have not been totally put off <laughs> from going into work at a restaurant after this conversation? Uh, did you find a reason to be excited to start at the bottom of a career in restaurants? Oh, yeah. God, yes. I think... I mean, I'm 34 years old. I am to go into a, a restaurant any time after you're in your mid 20s is 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 crazy. You're just physically not cut out for it. But if you're a young person who wants to become a chef, or and let's be clear, most of your life you will be a cook, and a cook is a virtuous job. You learn the kitchen. You learn how it works. The fact of restaurant kitchens, is that the greatest home cook in the world would be a sobbing wreck after five minutes on the saute station because it's a completely different skill. But when you get it, the pleasure of getting it right, of making something elegant and refined quickly (laughs) and efficiently and getting your movements down to the barest minimum... It's a, it's a beautiful thing to watch, and it's a beautiful thing to be able to do. And I got that for just a second when I finished cleaning all my squid. I, I, that was real joy. And if you are game for it, if food is something you love, if, the kid, if restaurants are things that you love and that you want to be a part of, I think that's a really joyful thing to do. 
Sam, thank you so much for being on Milk Street. Pleasure's all mine. Thank you so much. That was Sam Ashworth. His article for Eater is called Super Sad True Chef Story. You know, the French restaurant system is, if nothing else, perfectly French. Their single-mindedness is also evident in their popular proverbs. Who runs after two hares at the same time catches none translates to learning one restaurant skill at a time. Soups, grills, sauces, etc. Little by little, the bird makes its nest. That's why Jacques Pepin apprenticed in a Lyon restaurant at age 16. Of course, it takes years to produce a well-trained chef. Finally, my favorite, no one is as deaf as the one who does not want to listen. And that pretty much describes the French organizational system from the post office to a Michelin-starred restaurant. There is a right way of doing things since the beginning of time, so why change it now? And that stubbornness can be a good thing. It's given us not only French food, but the most beautiful city in the world, Paris. A reminder that plus ça change, plus c'est la même chose. It's time to chat with J.M. Hirsch about this week's recipe, butter chicken. J.M., how are you? I'm doing great. You've been traveling a lot lately. I always do. uh, Well, you went to Mumbai, formerly known as Bombay, and you came back with a recipe for butter chicken. Now, my first question is, is this like chicken tikka masala, which is kind of an ersatz, sort of made-up restaurant recipe that made its way to London, or is butter chicken a real recipe that people make? There is some debate about that. I mean, the reality is it is a real recipe in Mumbai, and it is a real restaurant recipe. And that was one of the challenges I found when I was in Mumbai, because, you know, oftentimes when I travel for Milk Street, I try to find home cooks to teach us because they know best how to do home cooking. However, I was really challenged to find a home cook who would make butter chicken. And the more I dug, the more I realized that's because traditional butter chicken uses a tandoor oven, which you very rarely find at home. So in order to find this, they sent me out into the boondocks on the outside of Mumbai to what are called dabas, which are essentially truck stops. And that's where these massive tandoor ovens, where these cooks in these open-air kitchens and dining rooms cook up huge slabs of meat and skewers of meat in these kind of urn-shaped ovens where they stand the meat into the oven, heats it very quickly, sears it, And then they proceed with the recipe. So anyway, that's why they don't cook it at home. And that's why I had to go searching for it on the outskirts of the city. Eventually, I did manage to find a home cook who was willing to show me how to adapt to that recipe. And so just could you define what butter chicken is and what it isn't? Sure. So butter chicken starts out as chicken that's been marinated in oil, yogurt, garam masala, some garlic, ginger, and some chili powder. They put that on the skewers, put it in the tandoor ovens, and they sear it and they make sure it gets good and charred. They then take that and they marinate the cooked chicken a second time. A lot of times it's a very similar mix of oil and garlic and ginger. This time they add tomatoes, chili, honey, and this is where it gets a little controversial. The recipes that I think you're referring to that have moved over to London in the United States often add cream and butter. But in Mumbai, I found that more often they used creamed cashews. So why is it called butter chicken? They'd still add some butter at the end. They finish it with a little bit of butter. But I found that the cashews made this much lighter, Hmm. but equally creamy. And it was incredibly delicious because you have this mix of of tastes and textures because you've got the charred chicken underneath this beautiful velvety rich sauce. And it's tangy. It's got a little bit of heat, a little bit of sweet. Wonderful dish. So the obvious question is, if you don't have a tandoor oven, how were they doing at home? They just sautéed in a skillet or what? I did see that actually done, and, and it was good, I, I will say, but we were also shown a way of just doing it under the broiler because the broiler you know, replicates that sort of intense heat where it sears and chars the meat very quickly. And we had a lot of luck adapting the recipe using just the broiler. So we, our version of this recipe, takes the chicken, marinates it much like we learned in Mumbai, throws it under the broiler until it's nicely charred, pulls it out, then sauces it a second time, and we finish it on the stovetop like they do in India. And was it as good as what you had? It was fantastic. (laughs) (laughs) He said modestly. (laughs) Jam, thank you. A traditional recipe for buttered chicken, but adapted from a home cook in Mumbai to the home cooks here in America. Thank you. Absolutely. Thank you. You can get this recipe for buttered chicken at MilkStreetRadio.com. You're listening to Milk Street Radio. Coming up, we'll chat with Dr. Aaron Carroll about the real problem with beef. 
You know, I grew up with Vermont farmers who made do with tools they had on hand. A hammer, pliers, uh, and baling twine, of course, for most jobs. When I became a cook, however, I found that having just the right knife or maybe the perfect carbon steel skillet made all the difference. And the right tool also added pleasure to my cooking. I truly enjoyed my time prepping as well as cooking food. And that also goes for a car. The all-new Lexus GX has an exceptional capability that will have you seeing possibilities you never knew existed. Its advanced technology and luxurious interior mean that wherever you go, you'll never go without. And that includes available dynamic sky panorama glass roof, available front row massaging seats, available 33-inch all-terrain tires, and available multi-terrain select. Live up to the all-new Lexus GX, luxury beyond limits. Experience amazing at your Lexus dealer. Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan-crusted chicken or garlic-butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings. From premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts, start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Did you know cats tend to hide symptoms of sickness and pain? I learned this the hard way after losing my cat, Gingy. So I created Pretty Litter, a health monitoring litter that helps detect early signs of illness by changing colors, saving you money and potentially your cat's life. Pretty Litter is veterinary and developed, and it's the easiest way to keep tabs on your fur baby's health right at home. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. This is Milk Street Radio. I'm Christopher Kimball. Next up, Sarah Moult and I will be taking a few more of your cooking questions. Welcome to Milk Street. Who's calling? Hi, this is Drew from Santa Monica. And how can we help you? Well, I've noticed a few of your recipes call for salting and microwaving vegetables. Mm -hmm. I have a small kitchen, no microwave. What do I do? Yeah, I have a microwave somewhere in the basement. <laughs> so um, I wouldn't even have room in my garage. Well, you can do what people used to do years ago, which is to salt the vegetables, let them sit in a colander for 30 minutes or so, and the excess water will come out of it and then rinse them off, you know, and then use paper towels to dry them off. But just salt and let them sit for 30 minutes would do the trick. So, And would I over-salt if I, or overdo it if I did it overnight? Yes, Okay. It also so. sort of depends on what vegetable it is. I mean, some vegetables do not contain that much liquid. I mean, what vegetables are you right. thinking of? I mean, I'm mostly doing it with eggplant and zucchini. Oh, yeah. yeah definitely. Yeah. Absolutely, which makes a lot of sense because you want to concentrate their flavor, and that's the best way to do it. And also the eggplant after you salt it, and you can press it between layers of paper towels also, and you get some of the liquid out as well. Right. Right. But, yeah. Well, it's nice when they hold their shape and don't get all mushy, so I that's always true. like to salt those ones. Yeah, yeah, that's essential, I think. Yeah. That's true. Or cook an eggplant forever on a grill and then cut it, and then you have that. Oh, it's melted. Yeah, then you have that, you know, sort of eggplant baba ganoush. Jam. Yeah, eggplant yeah. jam. And you Yummy. put some tahini on it and olive oil and sesame seeds and eat it. You're making me hungry. Well, that sounds delicious. Yes. Uh, that's how they do in the Middle East, yeah. So just salt it and let it drain for half an yeah, hour. Yeah, it's that easy. It'd be good. Yeah. Great. Love an easy answer to a question I thought was more complicated. Well, usually we make simple questions complicated, but... No, that one's an easy <laughs> one. That was the opposite. Great. Okay, Drew. Drew. Thanks for calling. Okay, thanks yes. so much. Yeah, bye. Bye-bye. Bye. This is Mill Street Radio. Sarah and I are ready to answer your questions. Give us a call, 855-426-9843. That's 855 855- 426-9843, or email us at questions at MilkStreetRadio.com. Welcome to Milk Street. Who's calling? Hi, Sarah. This is Julie from Charlotte, North Carolina. Hi, Julie. 
How can we help you today? I'm guessing Chris is there too. Oh, he is. Oh, He's I'm, just behaving and being me. quiet for a minute. I, I don't talk very much. <laughs> <laughs> well, I'm excited to talk to you guys. I had a baking question. I started recently grinding my own wheat berries to make flour. And I've been using it for all my baked goods really with no issue, except for my bread. It just turns out very tender, super soft. And when I try to slice it, it tears up. It's just not ideal for sandwiches. So that was kind of what I was wondering if you guys had tips or advice on or a recommendation of a cookbook or something that might be helpful what to change so it doesn't fall apart as much. Well, I suspect the problem here is the gluten content of the wheat berries that you're grinding up. It's not high enough to really support the structure you need for the kind of bread that you're making. Well, do you know what kind of wheat you're dealing with? It's called a soft white wheat berry. okay. I did try the a red. Right, that's... um, Maybe it was called a hard red. Yep, hard wheat. And it just didn't have as good of a flavor. It was a little bit more, you know, intense. Didn't have the smooth flavor that my kids are used to getting in sandwich bread. But how was the bread? Did it have better shape and held together better? Slightly, yes, it did. That wasn't their complaint, the texture. It was the taste. There's this thing called vital wheat gluten, which is a very, very high gluten flour that's been treated in such a way that a little goes a long way. You just add a tiny bit, like one Mm -hmm. tablespoon per cup of flour. If you might want to look into getting that, you could probably get it from King Arthur flour, I think. Okay. and uh, That sounds familiar. Yeah. I mean, I have never worked with it, but I know that's the point of it, to help those low-gluten flours behave better in the gluten department, which is the structure department. Chris, what do you think? I think that's a good idea. I would try mixing half white soft with half hard wheat berries and grinding those and see if that gives you a mix between flavor and elasticity and texture in the bread as well. I mean, maybe your your hard wheat was really hard and your soft wheat was really soft and (laughs) you want mama bear, you want something. But meanwhile, I'm really impressed that you're doing that. That's pretty cool. Yeah. Just for fun. But that's great. I think that's really cool. It feel like Laura Ingalls. Yes, exactly. (laughs) I think that's cool. You're on the prairie. The only other question, I don't ever add oil to my some of the recipes I've seen have called for it, and I didn't know if that is also useful in holding it together. Is that something that no. would help or not necessary? No, okay. it's just all about the gluten. I mean, can I ask a question? When you knead your dough, you're doing this in a standing mixer, you're doing this by hand. How are you kneading it? I have a bread machine that I only use for the dough cycle. So it's a 30-minute knead cycle in the machine, and then I take the dough out and put it in the bowls to rise. Yeah, I've done that too. You might want to try one batch of loaves or one loaf done just kneading entirely by hand. And the question mm-hmm. is, would the bread machine do as good a job of kneading as you need it to? I find, in general, right. bread machines turn out pretty soft bread. That may be a problem. So I would try a standing mixer with a dough hook or do it by hand and just see if that makes a difference because it could be the bread machine. This is very interesting. I would like to know because I'd always wanted to grind my own wheat. Yeah. So, yeah. Julie, will you report back? I definitely will. And thank you so much. All right. Okay. Take care. Bye-bye. Bye. Bye-bye. This is Mill Street Radio. Now it's time for some culinary wisdom from one of our listeners. Hi, my name is Julia from San Antonio, Texas. And here's my tip about peeling carrots. Hold the unpeeled skinny end of the carrot first and scrape the fatter end first. This gives you a better grip on both ends. Bye. If you'd like to share your own cooking tips on Milk Street Radio, please go to 177milkstreet.com slash radio tips. Next up, let's find out what Dr. Aaron Carroll is thinking about this week. Dr. Carroll, how are you? I'm good. How are you? I'm good. Uh, You've probably been doing some research uh, and have a new finding for us. Well, the first thing I thought we'd talk about has to do with beef. I, I don't know if you saw the news a couple months ago, but there was a huge bunch of studies that came out of Annals of Internal Medicine that, you know, made the argument that the health effects of eating red meat and processed meat aren't nearly as bad as 
you know, many people have said in the past, right. and therefore really it's okay for lots of people to eat pretty much what they're eating. And I actually wrote an editorial to go along with it with, with a co-author. Um, but we stressed at the end, and this is what I'd love to talk about, that while we could quibble and argue about the health effects of meat, um, the fact that we continue to do so ignores a much larger argument, and that is on the environmental impact of right. beef. And that something we could all agree on probably is that, you know, meat consumption in general has a big effect on the environment. Right. But even then, it's not as simple as people think. Because, uh, you know, first of all, let's acknowledge that, uh, you know, raising cattle consumes a huge amount of land, um, something like 30% of the world's ice-free land is used to raise livestock. We have to grow a lot of crops to feed animals. It's very inefficient. We cut down forests. Beef, especially cattle, produce a lot of methane, which is not good for the climate. And so, in general, a significant amount of man-made or man-caused climate change bad gases are caused by the raising of cattle. And so therefore, there's been a lot of press recently with trying to find meat substitutes, things that we could eat that taste like meat that might convince people to give up meat. You got the Impossible Burger, you got a Beyond Meat, you got all of these substitutes. But part of the problem is that it's not ground beef, which is which is hurting the environment. It's, it's steak. Cattles and cows are not really raised to give us ground beef. In fact, much of our supply of ground beef comes from whatever is left over from cattle when they're slaughtered for more expensive cuts and from dairy cows, which are no longer producing. And so therefore, getting people to eat more of these other products that replace ground beef isn't necessarily going to save us because people hmm. are still going to want to eat steak, they're still going to want to eat brisket, and as long as they're being raised for those meats... We're probably going to raise a similar number of cattle. And as long as we want to consume dairy hmm. and, and cow's milk, huge number of cows are going to get raised. And we're not going to have necessarily the environmental impact we might like. Now, of course, there's stuff on the horizon that people will talk about, about, you know, growing cultured meat in a lab and actually creating steaks. But that's decades away. No one's got a handle on that. It's unlikely to occur soon. And if we want to find ways to reduce our impact on the environment by eating less meat, we really need to focus on things like steak and not necessarily put so much of our focus on ground beef. That's really interesting. Um, you know, I, I noticed uh, going back to the 70s uh, that people often try to replicate an item they don't want to eat, you know, by using seitan, for example. Mm -hmm. I just wonder at the end of the day, does it make any sense to try to replace an item with something similar to that item, although manufactured uh, in a different way? Or should we just reduce the amount of that item in our diet entirely instead of trying to replicate it? Well, from a health perspective, my God, absolutely not. So, you know, we should all dispense with the idea that all of these you know, fake meat burgers are healthier. The Impossible Whopper's got like 630 calories versus the traditional Whopper 660. It has pretty much the same amount of saturated fat and protein. It has more sodium and carbohydrates. No one should be under the illusion that they're being healthier by making this switch. Now, from an ethical perspective, sure, absolutely it makes sense. You know, if you're saying, I don't eat meat from an ethical perspective and you like these other things, then so be it. That's great. But if we really want to get at reducing the impact of animals in the environment, ground beef is a good start, but it's not going to make a real difference for the market or for any of this. Also, physiologically, if you look at a 1,200-pound Angus or whatever, there's a lot of meat on those hind legs yeah. and other scraps, and it's very hard to sell that compared to the steak. So there's a superabundance of the ground meat. There is, and they will wind up shipping it off to other countries. There's, there's lots of ways to try to make use of those cuts, but unfortunately, giving up ground beef and switching to these fake meat substitutes, it's not even going to get us there. And I do believe in my heart, if we ever do gain the ability to culture meat in a lab, and create fake steak, that's a game changer. That's actually something which could have a major impact on the market and on the environment. <laughs> Hothouse porterhouse steaks, right? Exactly. I mean, but you be, <laughs> I mean, they're talking about it, about, you know, using even like 3D printing of cells. We, we do this actually for medical purposes, for trying to create transplants or, you know, tissues that we can do. Of course, it's very early stages in experimental, but 
A lot of the people that did that original research are the ones that went off to start some of these companies which are trying to actually culture meat for for consumption because there's a much bigger market for that, clearly, than there is in the medical realm. But but we're still, unfortunately, we're just not there yet. But that's, I think there's much more potential there than people might realize. So in 20 years, I'll order my 3D hamburger printer from Amazon, right? A hamburger will get there. You Hopefully, is you could order your 3D ribeye. That's what you really want. Dr. Aaron Carroll, uh, once again, defying conventional wisdom. Thank you. Thank you. That was Dr. Aaron Carroll. He's the professor of pediatrics at Indiana University School of Medicine, also a regular contributor to the New York Times Upshot column. That's it for today. If you tuned in too late or just want to listen again, you can download and subscribe to Milk Street Radio wherever you find your podcasts. To learn more about Milk Street, go to 177milkstreet.com. There you can download each week's recipe, watch the new season of our television show, browse our online store, or order our latest cookbook, The New Rules, Recipes That Will Change the Way You Cook. You can also find us on Facebook at Christopher Kimball's Milk Street, on Instagram and Twitter at 177milkstreet. We'll be back next week, and thanks, as always, for listening. Christopher Kimball's Milk Street Radio is produced by Milk Street in association with WGBH. Executive producer, Melissa Baldino. Senior audio editor, Melissa Allison. Co-executive producer, Annie Sinsabaugh. Associate producer, Jackie Nowak. Production assistant, Sarah Klaff. And production help from Debbie Paddock. Senior audio engineer, David Goodman. Additional editing from Vicki Merrick, Sydney Lewis, and Samantha Brown and audio mixing from Jay Allison at Atlantic Public Media in Woods Hole, Massachusetts. Theme music by Chubob Crew. Additional music by George Brendel Egloff. Christopher Kimball's Milk Street Radio is distributed by PRX.